Well, good morning, City Light. My name's Chris, one of the pastors here. And I uh, want to encourage you, if you've got your Bible, would you open it up to Luke chapter 20? We're going to be in verses 19 through 26 this morning. We're going to be camped out there. Now, let me start with this question. I want to ask you, have you ever just felt out of place? Have you ever felt like you're a part of a culture, um, maybe an environment that's very different than the environment or the culture that you might have grown up in? Maybe this happened when you met your in-laws for the very first time and you said, okay, this home's culture is a little bit different than my home's culture. Uh, maybe this happened when you went overseas for the first time and you realized, okay, this is just a little bit different. Let me ask you if you've ever felt a little bit out of place like that. I asked you that question because that's how I felt when I went to Wayne State College as a freshman. I love to talk about Wayne. Wayne is a great place, beautiful place. Um, it's, a, it's a small rural community. It's a basically a small college with 2,000 or 3,000 students. Not a huge university, just because there's not a lot of people that can meet the academic requirements to get in. <laughs> it's surrounded by cornfields and feedlots, and when the wind blows a certain way, you can smell the cows. That's real. They all go, oh my gosh, that's just the smell of money. I'm like, that smells horrible. That's the worst smelling money I've ever had, ever. That was just, it's bad. And, um, but before I went to Wayne, I didn't know anything about this stuff. I um, grew up right here in Omaha. I grew up in North Omaha, played basketball at North Omaha. Uh, I remember like taking, as a teenager, the actual public bus system to the Crossroads Mall to buy my back-to-the-school clothes shopping. Like that's, rest in peace. Anyway, so we, that's where I grew up. And then, and then when I was in high school, like it was really kind of about fashion and at Omaha North. It was like Omaha, like we had Air Jordans and Air Force Ones. That was really in. You had to have the right shoes. And so, you know, I'd like, every Sunday night, my tradition was like I'd find my mom's old toothbrush, find that whitening toothpaste, and just make sure your, clean, your shoes are super fresh, like super white, super clean. You have to get them perfect, right? But then you go to Wayne State, brothers on my dorm floor got like real boots, not like the cute, sexy, shiny boots, but like boots that they've walked through mud in. And it's like the, the dude who's got the dirtiest boots is like the alpha male, you know? I just couldn't even understand it. It was just a totally different thing. And I showed up on campus. I had like a flat bill with a sticker on it because I wanted everybody to know like it was a fresh new hat, you know. And they got like pioneer seed corn hats. It looked like they had been in a, like attacked by a bear. You know, it's all stained up, ripped. I don't know what's happening to the thing. It's just totally, totally different. So I was a 100% a city kid. And I remember the first time the guys at the dorm were like, hey, man, you want to go out? There's some people dancing. It's going to be a party. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I remember thinking, okay, I heard, what I remember hearing was dance party. In my head, I'm like, okay, there's people, and there's dancing. I'm good at dancing. I like people. Let's get after it, you know? And so I'm all excited. I jump into this dude's truck. We're driving, not into the city, but like into a cornfield. So now all of a sudden, it's super dark. I'm looking to the right. I see corn. I'm looking to the left. I see beans. I don't know what's happening. Only thing I see in the distance is a barn. And so we pull up, get out of the truck, and they're like, man, you ready to go to this dance party? I'm like, dude, I'm so hyped. Um, and we get in, and it's a little different than what I'm expecting, right? So I walk into the barn, and all I see is wall-to-wall flannel. Like, just so much flannel, just boots and flannel. And you're not hearing, like, Taylor Swift, like, pop country. You're hearing, like, old-school country that involves, like, a dog and an old rusty truck. Like, that kind of country music, you know? And it's at that moment that I realized their definition of dance party and my definition of dance party are two completely th different things. But I simultaneously was two things in that moment. 
I was a city kid, but I was also a rural college student. I was a dude who loved the city, but I was in a barn filled with people who had flannel on, right? So I was these two different things, and these worlds were colliding, and these values were colliding, and these expectations were colliding, and I was like, I got to figure this out. And I tell that whole story and that whole illustration because that's who we are as Christians. We're two simultaneously things, two things at the same time. What I mean by that is Christians, your citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3 says, listen, if you're in Christ, you love Christ, you know Christ, and you worship King Jesus, then you're a member of the kingdom, and you're a child of God, and your citizenship isn't in this world, it's in heaven. So you're living as a stranger and alien here. This is not your home. You were created for and saved to heaven. That's who you are. You're a citizen of heaven. I don't know if you guys realize this, but when you meet Jesus and bow your knee to King Jesus, he doesn't just like beam you up, Scotty, right? Like he leaves you here. You're also an American. You're also a Nebraskan. You're also an Omahaan. You also have a real job and deal with real authority figures in your life. And so the question I want to ask today is how does our citizenship in heaven and what we have in Christ impact how we live under and in authority roles on this side of eternity? What does that look like? Jesus in chapter 20 is going to speak into this tension that we all felt. What do we give our ultimate authority, Christ, King, and Creator? And what do we, how do we handle our authority figures and authority roles here on this side of eternity? So open your Bibles. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 uh, through 26. The first thing I want to do is just jump into our text. I want to read the first two verses of this passage um, because a couple things are going to happen. One, we're going to get context for the story. And two, we're going to see this tension that's been developing. Uh, as Pastor Eric uh, kind of hit, hit on last week, you're going to see this tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it's at an all-time high here, so you're going to start to see that surface here in the passage. So here's what it says. Verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something that he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So the first thing that we learn in this story is really that there's a group of religious leaders that hate Jesus. They hate Jesus. And what's interesting here is you see the chief priests, you see the scribes, and if you actually go to Matthew, this, this same story is recorded. The Herodians were involved, the Pharisees were involved. And, and what you, you need to note about this is Luke's including all of the different people, and the gospel writers are including all of the different religious leaders who are kind of involved in this, because he's trying to show that these guys are different in so many ways. These group of religious leaders some of them believe that life after death, you're going to have an actual resurrection. Some of them didn't believe in that. Some of them were very involved politically. Some of them weren't. They were different theologically. Some of them were very in favor of the Romans. They were very aligned with their values. They were, had a relationship with the Roman authorities. They worked well with the Roman authorities. Others didn't want anything to do with the Roman authorities. So the differences here in this group of religious leaders is vast. Very different group of people. And yet the thing that they have in common is they all hate Jesus. They, they have this dislike for one another. This group of religious leaders were not BFFs. They didn't hang out. They weren't friends. And yet because they had such a distaste for Jesus, they come together to conspire against 
Jesus. The other thing we learn just in these first few verses isn't just the characters in this story, but we learn their heart motives and posture towards Jesus. Verse 19, it says, they want to lay hands on Jesus. Okay, guys, has anybody ever heard that term? That's actually a slang term. Like, dude, I promise you, if I could just lay hands on this cat right here. That's, that means, like, I want to physically harm him. I think that's what they were trying to say. No, this is not them, like, I want to lay hands on him. Let's get him in a Bible study. Let's just pray over little sweet Cynthia. Let's lay our hands on her right now and just pray that the Lord. That's not here. These guys are angry. They're daydreaming of what they would do if it was just them and Jesus in a dark alley. They violently oppose and hate Jesus. That's where these dudes are at. The second half, verse 20, it says, they're just trying to get Jesus to say something to get him in trouble with the authorities. So they're not coming to Jesus with a teachable spirit, a humble heart, a warm affection for him. They're out to get him. Now, if you're dropping into the story, one of the things you've got to ask is why do these men, why do these grown men, why are they sending spies? You seem weird. You're spying on Jesus. At what point is that just a little weird? They're pretending to be sincere. It just feels really weird. You've got grown men spying on other grown men. Jesus is like a homeless dude. Doesn't, why, why are you spying on him? It just seems so weird. So what's the deal? Well, the deal is that Jesus was not afraid of these men. Just because they had religious authority and power and position, he spoke up against their sin in their lives. Jesus said, listen, you guys love to pray publicly. You love to be seen as the people who look super godly, but behind closed doors, you don't pray. You got this big, puffy spiritual outside, but on the inside, you have a really shallow worship life. Also, you religious leaders, you love to be loved. You want to be popular. You want to sit in the seats of honor and fame. You want everybody to clap for you. You want to be known, but you don't love people. You use people. You don't care for the poor. You use and oppress the poor. So Jesus called these people out for their sin. These group of religious leaders didn't like that. They felt exposed, and instead of repenting, saying, Jesus, you're right, I need grace and forgiveness. There's some stuff in my life that doesn't meet and match up. Instead, they just kind of come together to hate on Jesus and try to get him. And so um, we see this happening and developing. And then in verse 21, these religious leaders start to make their move towards Jesus. Verse 21, they start to make their move towards Jesus. And they basically say, Jesus, we know that you you teach the way to God. You teach what is right. You don't show partiality. You are good, you are wise, you are a teacher. Listen, this is flattery 101. Flattery, by definition, is being willing to say something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. It's the opposite of gossip. Gossip is saying something behind somebody's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Flattery is saying something to their face that you wouldn't say behind their back. That's what's happening here. Their whole motive, they don't believe this. They don't believe that Jesus teaches the way to God. They don't believe that he's a good teacher. So what are they trying to do here? They're just trying to disarm Jesus. They're trying to look sincere. They're trying to let his guard down so they can set him up with this question that they're about to drop on him. So in verse 22, that's exactly what happens in the narrative. They've flattered Jesus. They've complimented Jesus. They've been nice to Jesus. And now they've kind of huddled up privately to craft this incredible question that they're hoping is either going to discredit Jesus or get Jesus in trouble with the Roman authorities. So, verse 22, let's read it. It says this. So they ask him, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Basically, Jesus, should we pay taxes? 
This is an either-or question. It's either got to be yes or no. And he's really, what these religious leaders are doing is they're setting up a two-sided cliff for Jesus to fall off of. Okay? This is the basic either-or question, the same kind of question that Jesus asked the religious leaders when he said, is John the Baptist, is his authority from God or is it from man? Do you guys remember the Pharisees? They couldn't figure out, I don't know, if I say this, I'm going to get in trouble with these people. If I say no, I'm going to get in trouble with these people. It was an either-or question. It was a lose-lose for them, so they just walked away and said, I don't know, right? But right here, that's the same strategy they're trying to apply to Jesus, and the stakes are high on this question. How Jesus answers this question absolutely matters because here's what happens. If he says yes, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, the Jewish people are going to lose hope in him. They're going to think that Jesus is just a religious puppet. Oh, yeah, look at Jesus. He triumphed him here on his donkey, and everybody clapped for him, and now look what he's doing. He's bowing down to the Roman authorities and to Caesar. He's saying, pay your taxes. He's just a puppet. He's been manipulated. He's just trying to butter up to the politically powerful. Look at Jesus. He's not the Messiah that we're hoping that he would be that would come to bring about change and defeat our enemies. He's not that guy. So if he says yes... It's not going to go well, right? But if he says no, what's going to happen? No, don't pay your taxes to Caesar. That's a death sentence. Everybody's going to be like, yay, Jesus, look at how bold he is, so courageous. And they're like, that's a dead man walking right there. That's just, he's about to get, he's not going to go well for him, okay? That's what's going to happen because the Romans, they don't play around. Basically, the religious leaders are going to hear Jesus say, don't pay your taxes. They're going to go snitch on Jesus they're going to try to get him in trouble with authorities. And they're going to say, listen, Roman authorities, you need to pay attention to this Jesus. He's walking around town with his posse. He's getting crowds all excited. And you know what he's saying? He's, he's, he's saying, don't pay taxes. He's trying to undercut your authority here. He's probably trying to, he's going to try to overthrow you guys. I think this Jesus isn't just a religious teacher. I think he's got military aspirations. I think he's got political aspirations. He's a threat. You need to pay attention to this Jesus. And Rome... The Roman authorities, man, they had a very high value on keeping peace internally. This is Passover week. The city is being flooded with Jewish people coming ready to celebrate. And so they had extra authorities on hand. And the Romans were just trying to keep the peace at all expenses. And so the religious leaders are hoping, no, 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 please say, don't pay your taxes. Because we're going to get you in trouble with authority. So look what he does. The stakes are high. You've got a crowd of people looking wanting to teach, wanting to know the answer, and you also have a group of religious leaders just hoping that he answers wrongly. Verse 24, he starts with a question. He said, does anyone have a denarius? That was a Roman coin at the time that was worth the average day wages. And then he asked a question once it starts to surface. Okay, who's on that? Whose likeness, whose image is on that coin? And they all say it's Caesar. And so then verse 25, let's read this together. He says this, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God, and to God the things that are God's. And now this is where we need to spend the rest of our time. I want to spend the rest of our time today on this one verse, because I think Jesus is setting up, what does it look like for us to have our citizenship in, citizenship in heaven and our citizenship here on earth? What does it look like for us to be in relationship with the ultimate authority of the heavens and the earth? And what does it look like to have relationship and, and respect the authority on this side of eternity? The first thing I want to say is, um, point one is this, it's theirs. It's theirs. He's going to say, give to Caesars, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's, it's there. 
So when Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, all of the people would have been like, oh, really? This was not a popular view. This was not a, a winsome view. This was against popular opinion because the, the people of God didn't want to pay taxes to a foreign and pagan government. But Jesus is saying, give to Caesar that which is owed to him. Listen, Caesar was providing services for the people of God. Whether they liked it or not, it was the Roman government and the Roman military that was keeping them safe. It was the Roman government that created order out of chaos. It was the Roman government that built roads that helped transportation happen and businesses thrive. It was the Roman government that set up shipping ports and fees that helped prosper the entire country. It was the Roman government that put into place um, educational systems and all kinds of judicial systems and courts that actually help benefit the people of God. And so, listen, those services cost money. So he's saying, hey, listen, there's some common grace to this government. Give to Caesar what is owed to him. Give to Caesar what is owed to him. He's reinforcing this idea that, that local governments actually have the right to tax their citizens and that um, we, as the people of God, have a responsibility to pay those taxes. We have a responsibility to pay those taxes. Now, when I was laying in bed last night, and it's Saturday night, I just could not wait to wake up this morning and talk to you about taxes. I was like, this is, this is going to be the most popular Sunday ever. This is going to go viral. People are going to be tweeting this out, you know? But, but it needs to be spoken about, and I think there's some basic application points here. I want to pause, though, and also say, like, we don't live in Rome, okay? So Jesus is not asking us for blind submission to the government, He's not asking us just to buy into that and do whatever they say, but he is going to say in other parts of the Bible, Romans 13, God is going to say all authority be subject to that because guess where that authority came from? God. God's the one that put the Romans in authority. It's not like he fell asleep and all of a sudden they snuck in and took over Israel's land. No, God is the one who's in control. He is sovereign. He is controlling all things. He's controlling rulers. There's always going to be people like Caesar and kings and presidents and all of those people, and they come and go, but our ultimate authority is God. He's the ones that raises those people or lowers those people. So he's going to say, um, be subjective to them, honor them, obey them, respect them. Why? Because God put them in place. We also, though, can't just give our blind submission. That's what I was trying to say. We can't just give our blind submission to them. We also live not in a dictatorship, but in a democracy. And so I just want to say, Christians, it's good and God-honoring to vote, to understand the policies, to care about civil affairs. Those things are important. You should be involved. Pay attention to those things. Dial into those things. Jesus doesn't say you're so spiritual that you just need to check out of those things. It's good and God-honoring to value those things. I don't want to miss a very practical application, though. Jesus says to a group of people, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give him what he's owed. And, um, and I know that it's tax season right now. CPAs and accountants are very busy. Some of you guys have already filed your taxes because you're like, I'm getting my money back, you know? And you're so excited because every year you get a tax refund and you've already done the math to figure out how many chicken wings at B-dubs you can buy. I mean, you're just pumped. Bring three ranches. I'll pay extra. It doesn't even matter. I got my check. You know, you're fired up. Others of you guys, you're going to wait until the very last day to file your taxes because you know you got to pay in. So you're like, I'm holding on to my money until the last, 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 last minute. But I don't know if the Bible cares so much when you uh, do your taxes, but how you do your taxes. He says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. 
And so for some of you guys, if this is an area of obedience in your life, you're actually reporting your actual income. You're not inflating your giving numbers and trying to decrease some of your income over here. You're not making up business expenses, but you're being honest and acting with integrity. If you're not claiming your neighbor's kids as your own kids and as your dependent, because you have to keep pay, you know, paying for their fruit snacks all day long. I mean, it's like, believe me, I had the temptation. I'm like, Dude, I'm paying your, how you get the tax break? I'm paying your kids. I'm paying for their food right now, you know? And so um, if you're not doing that, if you're acting rightly, then celebrate that. That's obedience to Jesus. Jesus has said to do that. That's a win. And there's a couple things that that communicates. One, your ultimate treasure is King Jesus, not more money in your bank or a bigger refund. That's a win. It also communicates that you're living out your citizenship in heaven here on earth, that King Jesus is the King and Lord of this area of your life, and it matters, Christians. We as disciples of Jesus, we got to stop minimizing the fact that Jesus just wants our past and he wants to forgive us and make a way for us to get to heaven. Jesus wants all of your life, and this is one of them. And so would we be a church that wouldn't play around? I think for some of us in this room, um, I want to ask you, are you claiming that you're just getting creative with the numbers on your taxes? Just getting a little creative? No, you're lying. (laughs) You know, it's called lying, you know. Are you pretending that you gave more than you really did? Are you cheating on your taxes and are you hoping that nobody finds out? Are you hoping to get away with it? I'm telling you, King Jesus says, no, 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 even this area of your life matters. Would you bring even this area of your life under obedience to me? Would you be honest? Would you not compromise your integrity, your faith, and your witness for just a few dollars on a tax return? What a miss. So church, may we always be a people who say, no, no, no. Let's give to Caesar what do we owe. Let's obey Jesus Christ even in this area of our life. Now, second point is going to be way more fun than first point. First point is it's theirs. Second point is you're his. Second point is you're his. So I want to move to the second part of his punchline in verse 25 where he says, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Give to God what is God's. So this is his punchline, and this is where Jesus is going to flip the conversation from How do we do business with our earthly authorities to how do we do business with our heavenly authority? This is where Jesus is going to flip the conversation from let me talk to you about your taxes to let me talk to you about you. Let me talk to you about your strength and your soul and your heart and who you're giving it all to. Are you giving to God what is God's? That's where he's going to take this conversation. He says, listen, you guys want to talk about Caesar and the authority that Caesar has in this temporary moment over just a limited area of our lives. But let me talk to you about God and his limitless authority in our lives because God doesn't just want a percentage of your income. He doesn't want just a slice of the pie. He doesn't want to just be included a little bit. He wants all of you. He wants you to love him with your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. He wants you to give to God what is God's. So we got to ask ourselves the question, how do we do that? What is God asking? What is he inviting us into? Let me show you how Jesus does this in this text. In verse 24, remember the moment that Jesus asked for a denarius, and he says, whose image is on it? And they say, Caesar's. And what Jesus does in that moment is he, he links whose image is on something to who's got authority in some ways over it. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, people of God, give to God what is God's. Mainly give God you because you were made in the image of God. 
all of the readers or listeners in this 2,000 years ago, they would have made an instant connection to Genesis chapter 1 where God said, I made you in, God said, I made you in my image. I made man in my image. You're an image bearer of God. I made a male and female. I created them in my image and likeness. And so church, one of the primary identities that we hold is we are image bearers of God. He's placed his stamp on you. And because of that, church, we need to understand our primary worth, value, and dignity are not tied to our performance at work or what some boyfriend and girlfriend said about us or about what part of the town we live in or how many kids we have. The primary place of our worth, value, and dignity are tied to the fact that the creator God, the God that put the stars in the sky and painted the colors of fall, he put his image on you. You bear his image. You're an image bearer of the creator eternal God. It's incredible. It's incredible truth, and it's a good truth. Maybe it would be helpful to think of it like this. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys go to museums to look at art very often. Um, I don't, but sometimes we do because my wife looks good when we dress up. And um, so that's usually the excuse there. But, um, but, you know, one of the things I notice about paintings and art is that the artist always signs his artwork. And, and at some point in history, there was a person with a canvas, and this artist stood before it and intentionally started to design something uniquely and beautiful, something that they would delight in, something that they would enjoy, something that would capture something. And, um, and at the very end, that artist stood back at what they had created and said, man, that is beautiful and that is good, and they delighted in it and they marveled at it. And then what did they do? They put their name on it. They stamped it. They said, this is, this, is a, this is a product of my workmanship. So Christian, that's what God's saying to you. You are a child of God and you are an image bearer. Christians, non-Christians, you, you bear the very image of God. That is who we are. That's what we have. And I want to say this absolutely matters because in this text, what God is saying To all of us, he's saying, listen, don't give yourself to someone or something. Give yourself to God. Give God what is God's. I created you. I love you. You bear my image. I've pursued you. So give to God what is God's. Give God your affections, your heart, your life, your past, your present, your future, every area of your life. Would you give to God what is God's? Is that not good news? Jesus flips the conversation. He says, let's not talk about taxes any longer. Let me talk about your heart. I want your heart. I want your life. This is incredible. When you understand who you are before a holy and right God, and God is saying, no, 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 even though you're messy, and even though you're broken, even though you've marred the image of God in your life through sin, I want you. I still want you to give yourself right to the right creator. This is incredible. On your best day, you're an image bearer. On your worst day, you're an image bearer. God is saying, Would you give yourself to God? City Light, let me ask the question. Do you know that God designed you and made you in an intentional act of love? Do you know that you bear the Father's image and have worth and value? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Are you experiencing the goodness of that truth? For others of you in this room, have you given God your heart, your affection, your life? Have you said, God, I'm going to give what is rightly yours? You are the creator You made me in your image and likeness. God, I want to give myself back to my creator. See, let me close in this good news. I want to 
zoom out of this text just a little bit and tell a little bit of a bigger story that we find in Scripture. It starts with God creating us in his image and in his likeness. God breathed us into life with an intimate act. He made us his image bearers. He gave us his image. Unfortunately, we sinned. Sin has marred the image of God in our lives. It's distorted things. That's why we're haunted by insecurities. That's why our relationships are fractured. That's why we have to lock our doors at night out of fear. Sin has entered into us and sin is entered into the world. And here's the good news. Is that God, the creator God, doesn't look at his creation and says, you've made a mess. I want nothing to do with you. Instead, what the creator God who gave us his image does is he comes in the full image of God and the person of work of Jesus Christ and the image giver dies for the image bearer. It's incredible. The one who made us in his image and his likeness lays down his life for those who have marred the very image of God so that we could be restored, redeemed, and saved. Listen, the good news of Christianity is not that God says give to God what is God's. The good news of Christianity is not that people try to give their lives to God. The good news of Christianity is that God has given his life for his people. Amen? And what's so profound about this teaching is when you actually look at where Jesus is saying these words, Jesus is standing before a group of people who he doesn't see as tax collectors or taxpayers or Roman citizens. He's looking at a group of people and he's seeing image bearers that he loves. He's looking at them and he's saying, would you give to God what is God right before God in the flesh is about to go to the cross and die so the image bearers can live. He's about to give his life so that you can have eternal life. Isn't that incredible? You see these connections? There is good news in this passage. And because of this story, I want to say in my personal life, God has, he has authority in my life. He's called me to give God what is God's, and I don't dutifully submit to that, but I joyfully surrender it all to him and say, God, you are a greater king and a greater authority. You can run and lead my life better than I ever could, so you can have control over how I pay my taxes and my sexuality and every pocket and arena of my life. God, you are Lord, and you can lead it. You're in control of it. God, I'll give you, God, what is rightfully yours. You've created me. I'm your creation. Everything is to you, from you, and for you. You have given your life for me, and so, God, I joyfully give my life to you. So for some of us in this room that maybe you guys are um, far from God, I want to just want to show you in verse 26 how this story ends. I'm going to wrap it up right here. Verse 26, it says these religious leaders, what do they do? They marvel at Jesus' teaching. They were really impressed that King Jesus hit them up with a one-liner that they can't come back to. But here's the issue. What I wish I could have seen is that these religious leaders realized that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. They bowed a knee and placed their faith in him. It's not just a win that they thought Jesus was a great religious teacher and they marveled at him. The win would have been is they would have finally come to the end of themselves and said, no, 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 King Jesus, I want a relationship with you. You have authority over my life. I surrender myself to you. So if some of you guys are in this room, I want to just do the obvious application here. Would you give to God what is God's? Would you give him your heart, your affection, your life, and your soul? Would you realize today that he gave his life for you? Would you respond to him in faith? For those of you that are Christians, I don't know about you guys, but I can't look at this text and study this text without being profoundly grateful for what Jesus has done for us. That the image giver would die for the image, the one who bears his image. This is incredibly good news. And this morning, I want us to give to God what is God's. Is there an area of your life you haven't surrendered to King Jesus? Would you do that? 
This morning as we worship Jesus Christ in just a minute, would we give him our affection? Would we give him our praise? As Gavin said, he is the one that is worthy. He has authority over our hearts and our lives. He's the, Lord and the, lead. He's the leader and the Lord of our lives. Would we sing to him? Would we give him permission to do whatever he wants in all areas of our life? Let's sing. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to profoundly just pause and say thank you, God, for being the one that would lay down your life so that we could have eternal life. That, God, we've marred the image by sin. We're broken, and yet, God, you, the image giver, gave your life for us. So we say thank you. Your forgiveness and mercies are new to us, and they're real to us, and we say simply, God, thank you. God, you are the ultimate authority. You're the one that designed the heavens and the earth. And, God, we want to say right now you have permission to do whatever you want and you would will in our lives. You're the authority. You're the ruler. You're the king. We lay our rights down. We want to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.